Good morning. Brian Hentel is on behalf of PG Publishing, doing business as the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I'd like to reserve five minutes, if that's possible. That is possible. And as you're probably aware, we're not watching the clock all that closely. I have noticed that, Your Honor. Go ahead. So we have two issues here today. First, did the National Labor Relations Board err in finding a statutory right to maintain a five-shift guarantee based solely on an expired CBA that explicitly limited the provision to the balance of the agreement ending on a date certain? Second issue, considering the company's rights under first national maintenance, did the board err in ordering reinstatement of two paper handlers that were laid off after the company engaged in effects bargaining over its transition to an all-digital newspaper? Right. Now, can I sort of reframe the first issue as I think, as I understand it from your papers and the other sides, the back and forth in the briefing, I understand you to be asking whether the board erred in not determining what the Pittsburgh Gazette's status quo obligations were using ordinary contract principles. That's correct. Is that it? Yes, that is correct, Your Honor. Okay. Then help me understand how this works, the status quo. I'm going to be asking this to the other side, too, but I want to, you know, I don't claim to be a labor lawyer, but here's what I understand. There's a collective bargaining agreement, and under this CBA, even if it expires, once you're into negotiations for a new CBA, the status quo ante, that is, before expiration, carries those provisions forward. You have to live by them because the law, the NLRA itself says you must do that. And I understand their argument to be that includes the obligation to give this five-shift opportunity to the employees, including the two pressmen who were laid off. In a nutshell, I understand your argument to be that's just not so because Section 10.2 in the document said that that five-shift opportunity ended by the terms of 10.2 on a date certain, a date which happened to coincide with the ending of the CBA itself. Have I stated your position correctly? You did with one small caveat, Judge. Our position would be it's not what the terms and conditions were during the agreement. It was the terms and conditions at the time of termination. And here, based on what's called a sunset provision on the five-shift guarantee, we state, yes, it's in play for the balance of the agreement, ending on date certain, which happens to be the date that the contract terminates. How is your position really different than looking at this as a status quo, sort of prima facie case, and then analyzing it as a matter of waiver? Because our position is you never have to get to the issue of waiver, Your Honor. The status quo was that the guarantee, it expired along with the agreement. 
If you look at Tackett, you look at Reese, they say, look at the ordinary contract principles. Our position is there's only one way you can read that provision, and that is the guarantee ends with the contract. Therefore, it never becomes part of the status quo. And as a practical matter, what's the difference? Is it burden of proof? Is it the standard? I think you never have to – if you look at the Finley Hospital from the sister court, what they said is, look, we're not going to get to the waiver issue because it never became part of the status quo to begin with. So, yes, I think it has a little bit to do with the burden of proof, but I don't think you ever need to get to the unmistakable waiver issue. You just have to say, well, what was the status quo? What was the understanding of the parties when the contract terminated? Here, any plain reading of the language leaves you with only one conclusion. It expires. It does matter because of the burden of proof, right? Because you're saying – the upside of your argument, I take it the reason you're making the argument is, under ordinary contract principles, you just have to demonstrate, yeah, it ended then, therefore not the status quo. But if it were a waiver, you'd have to have more clear, more strong, more explicit language to make your case, right? Actually, Your Honor, I think irrespective of which way you look at it, I think you get to the same result. So you think that this language, even if we thought, oh, it's not – it is part of the status quo. It didn't end by its terms, and therefore it did continue forward. The language of 10.2 was sufficient in itself, even under a correct reading of the NLRA and a statutory obligation to have waived that. Yes, I would take that position for one reason. So if you look at the Finley Hospital case, there they said – they just had the balance of the agreement type of language in it. Here we had that, and we go one step further in stating ending on the contract expiration date. So I think any way you look at it, if you're looking at it under the status quo, which is our position, that it should be analyzed under the status quo, or if you look at it at waiver, we've done enough. Well, you say it's on all fours with Finley Hospital, but Finley Hospital in the course of reasoning talks about there being no legal precedent, quote, supporting the notion that a one-time act by an employer creates a new status quo, right? And it also points out that it uses the duration of the agreement language no less than three times. So how is that – how is what we have on here really on par in terms of how clear and unmistakable it is? So, Your Honor, in Finley Hospital, they said, yeah, it was a one-time wage increase. It's a one-year contract. Here we have one contract to look at, Your Honor. Yes, it was a three-year contract, but it was still just one contract. So I think it is analogous on that point. Now, if you look at our contract, it lists the duration of the agreement language three places. General duration – the general duration clause in 10.2 and then in the no-strike provision. Obviously, the no-strike provision, it's operation of law. Once the contract ends, there can't be any no-strike language. Here – it leaves you with one issue, really. What did the drafters of the contract mean? Why would they have put this in 10.2 if not to make crystal clear this does not survive? So that's your superfluidity argument? I'm sorry? That's the superfluidity argument? Yes, I would say so because, look, if you look at the contract as a whole, there has to be a reason that the drafters went to 10.2 specifically and said, look, here, we're going to treat this different. We want to make clear to any reader that this expires along with the contract. And it was treated differently how? 
And it was treated differently how? Because it is only listed in those three places in the contract, one being general duration and the other in the no-strike provision. You've got a couple minutes left here in your opening. Why don't you talk to us for a moment about your second position? And, again, I'll ask you to help me make sure I understand this correctly. The idea of bargaining to impasse versus bargaining over effects of an entrepreneurial decision. I take it that the fight here is that there is a definite difference between those two things. The position that you've got is once we're in the land of an entrepreneurial decision, like we're going digital, there's no obligation to bargain with respect to the overall CBA. The only obligation is to bargain with respect to what's the fallout from the decision to stop publishing a paper edition seven days a week. Is that right? Yes, Your Honor. So under first national maintenance, it lays out, here's what you do when you make an entrepreneurial decision. You engage in effects bargaining. What the board does here is they say, well, we're going to ignore first national maintenance in its entirety and instead insist upon our bottom line overall impasse analysis. Overall impasse is a shorthand for saying overall impasse as to a full CBA. Correct, Your Honor. And our position, which the ALJ rightfully saw and the dissent rightfully saw, first national maintenance just doesn't fit into bottom line. In fact, the board knows that. If you go back and the ALJ, what he said is, look, it's incompatible. And really what the board does in a first national maintenance issue, it applies transmarine. This is what they've done in the past. Continuously, this is how the board handled first national maintenance. For some reason, this administration has taken it in a different direction. The practical impact of the board's decision, in your view, would have been to force PG to renegotiate the entire CBA as opposed to resolving through effects bargaining what Judge Jordan has quite rightly referred to as the fallout. Correct. Their position is you could not have laid off those two paper handlers, irrespective of you making the first national maintenance. That opens up everything. Yep. That's exactly it. And in that way, Your Honor, it completely undermines, completely throws out first national maintenance. And interestingly, if you look at the majority opinion, they bury it. But in footnote 18, they say, well, it's undisputed that this is a core entrepreneurial decision. But, look, it's not an effects bargaining case, so we're just going to ignore it. Well, do we end up getting to your second issue because of that footnote? Didn't they pin their entire decision on the status quo? Your Honor, respectfully, I would say they completely ignored first national maintenance, but nobody else did. But my question to you is, what did they do? You can say they ignored it, it was wrong, they were bad, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a matter of review. We're reviewing a decision which turns solely on their statement that you made a unilateral decision in violation of the status quo, right? Yes. Our position would also be that they ignored the first national maintenance issue, and they had no right to do that once they made the determination that a core entrepreneurial decision applied. 
then the first national framework applies. Does that mean we would need to remand for them to address this additional issue that you're focused on? No, Your Honor. I think it's crystal clear. If you look at it and you say, hey, first national maintenance was triggered here. How is it crystal clear if what they say is we're not talking about that? We don't have to talk about it. They didn't address it, right? They chose not to. They chose not to, but here is their fatal flaw. They acknowledged and admitted that this was a core entrepreneurial decision. At that point, they have no discretion. They must apply the Supreme Court law. Well, no. At that point, they did make a decision, and one could argue they absolutely had a right to make a decision. You know, they may have erred on the first issue, but having decided the first issue, they decided they didn't have to look at the second issue. That's how it reads. That's how it seems to read, that they made a decision on the first issue and said, we're not deciding the second issue. We don't have to. Well, the problem there, Your Honor, is even if the board would have said, look, we think statutorily you have to do this, first national maintenance is still a complete defense for us because the rights under first national maintenance, they trump the rights under bottom line, the board decision. So even if today you were to say, you know what, I think that five-shift guarantee survived, even if it did, we still had every right under first national maintenance to engage in effects bargaining and make the decision we did. Your legal position is even if it was status quo, that first national kicks in and that's just like first national uber alles. It doesn't make any difference. All those other cases that talk about you can't unilaterally change things are by the boards. You could rule in our favor either way here, Your Honor. But both parties have struggled to produce to us any authority that's dealing with this precise circumstance, right, where the unilateral change that is driven by an entrepreneurial decision comes at a time when a CBA is being negotiated. No party could point to a direct issue that compared first national maintenance and its compatibility with bottom line. That's exactly what the ALJ looked at. He said, look, I looked everywhere. I can't find anything. But from common sense, he was able to say, look, it's just they're not compatible. And if you look at it, look at what the remedy that the board ordered. We engaged in the effects bargaining. No dispute about that. We did exactly what we were told to do under Supreme Court law. But the board's saying, yeah, you've got to reinstate these two guys, even though you've already made your transition to the all-digital analysis. That's what Transmarine kind of looked at in the past and said, well, wait, you know, if they engage in effects bargaining, they made that core entrepreneurial decision, then we can't order reinstatement of people. That just points out that this is right at the intersection of those two lines of cases. And it implicates all sorts of nuanced policy issues. There's not authority that says that the board must, under those circumstances, treat it solely as an effects bargaining requirement, nor is there on the other side. So I think going back to Judge Jordan's question, is this something that the – if that issue of how to resolve that tension in those lines of cases and those policies was not addressed at all by the board, then under Chenery, don't we need to remand? You're saying, no, 
we can keep it and decide it. But how can we do that without the board taking on an analysis of its own? And is it even prudent for us to do that, given the policy concerns? I think, Your Honor, the issue here is that first national maintenance, that's Supreme Court precedent. The bottom line is it's a board case. No matter what, that needs to yield to first national maintenance. If the company makes a first national maintenance decision, that controls. We never get there if we agree with you on your first issue. You don't. All right. Well, is that so? I mean, because there were two different grounds at the different levels here, right? One is looking at it as layoffs, just the termination as the unilateral action, right? And the other is the guarantee. It's two separate actions. That's the way the board analyzed it, right? Yes, Your Honor. But if there was no guarantee, then the layoffs wouldn't have been unlawful because there would have been no requirement for the five-shift guarantee. The five-shift guarantee would not have been the status quo. Even without a five-shift guarantee, there are other provisions that could have been made. And, in fact, as I understand it, were part of the negotiations, the effects bargaining negotiations that were going on about other tasks that could be taken on by those employees to remain employed, right? Yes, that was the effects bargaining, Your Honor, where there was talks as to layoffs. There were talks as to continuation of health care. And there's no allegation that any of that was done in bad faith. Resolution of the five-shift guarantee doesn't take off the table layoffs being its own unilateral change to terms and conditions of employment, right? Yes. There's still, no matter what, Your Honor, after the contract expired, let's say the five-shift guarantee, and this is kind of, I'll call this the boogeyman argument that we saw in some of the boards in the union's case. They say, oh, well, if there's no five-shift guarantee, then the company can unilaterally do whatever it wants. That's not what we're saying. You're 100 percent correct. The contract did contain other provisions that talked about hours worked. So our position would be, yes, after the contract expired, then even though the five-shift guarantee went away, that didn't give us unilateral right to do whatever we want. We would still have to bargain over things like hours of work. And that was the basis for the board's decision, right? The board focused on the unilateral action of the layoffs, not of the five-shift guarantee. So the general counsel's complaint was narrowly tailored, and it simply said, look, you were prohibited from doing this until you reached an overall impasse on everything. They didn't allege that anything with respect to the individual layoffs that occurred as a result of the first national maintenance decision was unlawful. So it's really, that's kind of not before us, I would say, Your Honor. We have before us the board's decision, and the board is explicit that, in its view, the ALJ erred by limiting its review, seeing a single resolution around the five-shift guarantee. The board says, no, there are two different actions at play here. One was the guarantee, and one is layoffs. It proceeds to address only layoffs. Yes, because I believe what the board looked at was they said, look, the five-shift guarantee survived. Therefore, you were prohibited from making the layoffs at all under bottom line. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, counsel. We'll take the case under advisement.
that's the allegation. That's how, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no, this is important because it bears on what we would have to do. It sounds like you're agreeing with Judge Krause that independent of resolution in your favor on issue one, you were bound by other things that would be status quo that would have prevented you from laying people off but for the entrepreneurial decision. Are you agreeing with that? That's not what the general counsel alleged. Don't tell me what the general counsel alleged. Just answer the question that I'm trying to put to you, which is you appear to be acknowledging that even if the court, excuse me, the NLRB had been wrong about issue one and the five shift guarantee wasn't status quo, it could still be viewed as unilateral action contrary to your status quo obligations to lay these two people off because there were other protections in the CBA that continued. Is that correct? Yeah, so let me, I think you kind of, you've turned me in the right direction. I understand where this is going now. So here's how it would go. First, our position is the guarantee never becomes part of the status quo. It doesn't give us a unilateral right to make changes. However, there's the intervening act of the first national maintenance decision. That gives us the right. So we do have to get to the second. Yes, you do, Your Honor. Okay. All right. Sorry for the confusion on that. Do we even, do we get to the first issue given the board's analysis, which is what we're really reviewing? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Well, isn't the board focused on the action of layoffs, not the action of the five shift guarantee? But they're analyzing it under the prism of the five shift guarantee, Your Honor. They're saying, look, you never, the five shift guarantee survived. Therefore, you needed to guarantee that five shifts. It identifies there being two theories of liability, and it resolves it on the layoff basis, right? But it's based upon the board's finding that we had a statutory obligation to maintain the five shift guarantee. If we're in agreement that we would need to reach the, what we're calling the second issue, that is how to resolve the intersection of entrepreneurial decisions with effects-based bargaining and the negotiations of a collective bargaining agreement, which in the normal course would require the overall bargaining. And that was not addressed by the board itself in its opinion. Let me come back to the question I asked you earlier, which is if it didn't address it at all, is that something we can address? And if so, how? I believe you can, Your Honor, by simply looking at the remedy, I'm sorry, the requirements of bottom line and the requirements of first national maintenance. And if something in bottom line, if bottom line is not compatible with first national maintenance, such that 
you could not utilize your rights under first national maintenance. I think this court is in perfect position to address that issue. Well, I'm asking a slightly different question. I understand that's the argument on the merits. I'm asking about Chenery. And can we, if that's not a ground that was addressed by the board at all, don't we need to remand for the board to address it in the first instance? I think they did address it, Your Honor, by them stating, look, we acknowledge that this is an entrepreneurial decision and then just choosing to ignore it. I think that was there. They had every opportunity to address it. They purposely chose to ignore it because it was not compatible with the outcome they saw it. Okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Hentos. We'll hear from counsel for the NLRB. Good morning. May it please the court. Joel Heller for the National Labor Relations Board. This case hinges on the difference between a party's contractual obligations and a party's statutory obligations. Now, the court seems to be aware of what happens in Lytton, but just to make sure we're all on the same page before we delve into the language in this case. But the Supreme Court explained in Lytton that existing terms and conditions of employment that are then in effect when a collective bargaining agreement expires carry over, remain in effect by operation of law. We know your argument. Good. Now, go directly, please, to the argument from the Post-Gazette that 10.2 is clear, and it's clear that it's not speaking about, it doesn't put that date in there, you know, by accident. It's not talking about the termination of the agreement as a whole. 10.2 is talking about the termination of the five-shift guarantee, and that is a clear, bargained-for, accepted end of the line on five-shift guarantee that everybody agreed to. And therefore, Lytton doesn't come into it at all. Tackett and Reese come into it, and Tackett and Reese dictate that under ordinary contract principles, that's not part of the status quo because everybody agreed it wasn't. They all agreed that it ended, done. What is wrong with that argument? I'll take the first part first, and then I'll get to Tackett and Reese. The first part is that the language in 10.2 refers to the duration, the end point of the contract. No, that's the point. That's the entire argument. Well, we disagree on that. You've just put your finger on the argument, which is how do you interpret 10.2? Are you, the NLRB, entitled to say, no, that's what it means, or is that a matter of, like, let me change that. The NLRB is certainly entitled to try to figure out what the contract means, but at the point you're trying to figure out what the contract means, aren't you bound by ordinary contract interpretive principles? We are bound, yes, as a matter of contract interpretation. But you can't get away from Tackett and Reese because that's what Tackett and Reese say. So as a general matter, 30,000 feet, we have no dispute with that, that general, that ordinary contract principles apply to contract interpretation of CBAs. What we disagree with is this specific contract principle that the Post-Gazette puts forward here, that employment terms end with the contract absent a 
express language to the contrary. And that principle is inconsistent with Litton. Wait. What you're saying is they couldn't have agreed? Assume for the sake of argument that instead of saying March 31, 2017, they'd said March 30, 2017. They'd picked or April 1, 2017. They'd picked any date other than the coincident date of the end of the agreement. Would your argument be the same? I think if it was a different date than the end date of the contract, then no. Because you can't say that that phrase refers to the end date of the contract because it doesn't. What it comes down to is the NLRB's assertion, not some grand legal principle under the NLRA or under Litton, but the NLRB's interpretation that by picking March 31, 2017, they really meant not a separate end date for this 10.2. They really meant, oh, we're just referring to the end date of the agreement, and therefore it's part of the status quo. That's your argument, right? Yes, it refers to the end date of the contract because you have to read this case in light of the other cases dealing with durational language. This has nothing to do with cases. We're not talking about case law. At this point, we're talking about what does this language mean, right? We're talking about what this language means, but in the context of this idea from Litton. Well, how does that have anything to do with this? Once you agree, Mr. Heller, that we're in the land of contract interpretation, don't you have to agree that Tackett and Reese tell us ordinary contract principles? But what ordinary contract principles are we talking about? Let's look at the agreement itself. Let's look at the agreement itself. What should we make of the fact that 10.2 is the only provision to specify an end date? Well, that's not true. There are other provisions in the contract that have the same end date. All right, please. JA-247, for example, is an agreement about safety shoes, I believe, and it says this agreement will remain in operation through the end of this collective bargaining agreement. Through the end of the collective bargaining agreement. Due to expire March 31, 2017. Indeed. Isn't that very different from saying, as it says here, the guaranteed five-shift markup each payroll period for the balance of the agreement, comma, ending March 31, 2017. To say your shoes got to be worn through the end of the collective bargaining agreement is different than saying your five-shift guarantee is going to last through each payroll period week for the balance of the agreement, comma, ending March 31, 2017. I guess I'm saying the word comma because it strikes me that the comma there is a very meaningful thing. It's not saying the end of this agreement ending March 31. It's saying the end of the agreement, and then it's saying, comma, March 31, 2017. In other words, this is the date we're picking to end this 10.2 obligation. It's the difference between saying let's eat kids and let's eat comma kids. The first is an invitation to cannibalism. The second is an invitation for your children to come to dinner, and they're pretty different things. Yeah, just ask the kids. Yeah. So isn't the comma here of real significant import? So I don't think it is. Really? Well, there's a longstanding, to the extent that grammar and syntax and punctuation matter anymore, there's an old principle relative to participial phrases. And what that rule 
says is that a participial phrase comes at the end of a sentence, and a comma usually precedes the phrase if it modifies an earlier word in the sentence, but not if the phrase directly follows the word it modifies. Follow? I do. Then I have some meaning here. Doesn't it support why a comma would have been inserted at 10.02 at this very spot? And I guess I would just say that, well, I agree with as a matter of grammar and syntax, the parties, the contract shows that the parties didn't draft with that level of care that we would perhaps might expect. Because there are instances, there are other examples of including the end date along with the agreement. There are other examples where they don't. Give us one, Mr. Heller, and it's one where it's very explicit that they're talking about the whole collective bargaining agreement. They speak of it in that terms. But why don't we just say, since time is limited, assume for the sake of argument that we thought the comma really meant something, that they were careful draftspeople, sophisticated parties who knew what they were doing. And if we assume that, and we thought that NLRB was wrong in its contract interpretation, is the post-Gazette correct in asserting that that means this did not survive and become part of the status quo? If their contract interpretation is right, are they correct that it did not become part of the status quo? I would say that if you agree with them, that ending March 31st, 2017, if that phrase refers to the five-shift guarantee, then that means the parties waived their right to maintenance of the status quo. I don't agree that it does not become part of the status quo. It clearly was part of the status quo because the five-shift guarantee was an existing term and condition at the time the contract expires. That's different than Finley Hospital. It's like you're putting it back in the hat. If we're looking at the time the contract expires, and we've got a provision that we, for purposes of argument, are assuming means that it terminated, this obligation terminated at that time, then while other parts of the contract might be continuing for statutory purposes, isn't the conclusion from that reading of it, using traditional contract principles, that that particular obligation did not continue? But I think the reason it did not continue is because the statutory obligation to continue it has been waived. It is a waiver analysis. Then we're just talking about Finley Hospital, right? And whether in analyzing what is the status quo, you do that as a matter of looking at the contract and making that determination. It's a single step instead of the multiple steps that would go along with just taking anything and everything that's in there, regardless of the language, calling that the status quo, and then looking retrospectively to say, ah, but waiver. Finley Hospital was different because there was a different type of employment term at issue there. The five-shift guarantee is a static term. It was in place for the entirety of the contract. It was in place at the time. These employees were getting five shifts per week up until the point until the contract expired. But in Finley Hospital, the question was whether, or the Eighth Circuit saw the question as whether an annual raise, the practice of giving annual raises was the status quo. I understand. I understand. And so I think there's a distinction between the two. There it's a one-time event, and there's certainly some reference 
to that as a possible basis for their decision, but it doesn't seem limited to that. And here, even if this is done on a weekly basis, if we have language that's not so different than Cawthorn Trucking, where we've got a language that the obligation terminates or here ends, then why shouldn't we look at this as a single step and say we don't need to take this as status quo because the language of the contract itself makes clear at the outset that this particular obligation did not become part of the status quo, even if other terms in the contract did? Because I think it goes back to the principles at stake in Linton and underlying the NLRA that federal labor law doesn't like unilateral changes. And so you have to work hard. Unilateral. I'm not even sure why we're talking past each other, Mr. Heller. If you acknowledge for the sake of discussion that the correct interpretation of 10.2 is that the parties mutually agreed that this thing ended on that date and it was not a surviving thing. It was over, done, finito. Taken out of the rest of it. Then I don't understand what Linton has to do with it in the world. It's just a statement that it's not. It seems to me that that's why I asked the question the way I did. It seems to me by definition it's not part of the status quo because they agreed it wouldn't be. But you seem to be arguing it would be part of the status quo even if they agreed it's not part of the status quo. I mean, if they'd used the language at the end of this agreement, tell the end of this agreement, comma, March 31, 2017, and this will not be part of the status quo, you couldn't be making the argument you're making, could you? I think we're getting to the same place. I just think it is a waiver analysis. It's not the same place because it's a pretty big difference. As an analytical matter, it appears to me to be that I agree you get to the same place because then, you know, whether it's waiver or whether it's contract analysis, but we've got to write something here. We have to write to this. And there's a difference in the burden of proof and in the standard, right? Clear for a waiver, we're talking this high threshold of clear and unmistakable, right? And if we were in applying ordinary contract principles, that's not the way we'd articulate it. Yeah, so it matters. It does matter. And if this court wants to write an opinion that says, by including the language that it did in 10.2, the parties clearly and unmistakably waived their right to maintenance of that term, I won't be happy about it, but that's how the court would go in compliance with the labor law principles. Understood. Now, imagine we're not writing it the way you're suggesting, but we're writing it this way. This was not part of the status quo. Because of the way 10.2 was drafted, they gave it up there. What would be legally erroneous about that? Because it's applying the wrong standard. If you're not applying a waiver standard, it is the wrong standard. So what you're really saying is there's no way they can ever contract out of the status quo. The NLRB's position is you can never contract out of the status quo. It always has to be clear, unmistakable waiver language, period. How do you reconcile that with Tackett and Reese? Because Tackett and Reese weren't NLRA cases. Those were ERISA cases. They were breach of contract cases. So they dealt with 
contractual obligations, not statutory obligations. These are contractual obligations. They're both. These are, ERISA's got a statutory overlay too. You think the NLRA is so different, so special, and the NLRB is so peculiar that when the Supreme Court talking about labor kinds of issues, even in an ERISA context, it's different. And no matter, you can never contract out of status quo. Maybe I should just put it that way, real simply. Is the NLRB's position, parties can never contract out of status quo, period. So I guess I don't quite understand the difference that we're talking about here. Every time I try to get you to this point, you say, no, 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 it would have to be waiver because of Litton. So it sounds like, and I just want you to say it and own it if you're owning it. It sounds like what you're saying is, parties can never contract out of the status quo obligation, no matter what they say, no matter how clear they are, because there is the statutory overlay of the NLRA. You always have to, if you're going to try to do that, you have to have a waiver that would meet statutory language waiver standards. Is that the NLRB's position? Yes, that's our position. Okay, good. We got it. We got it. Thanks. We'll go ahead and we'll hear from, go ahead. I want to pick up where your colleague left off, and that is with what the board decided here and whether it's in our purview to decide the second question on the intersection of these lines of cases. Should we read this opinion and say the board simply didn't address it, and so we can't either, we have to send it back, or do we read this opinion to say the board recognized that there is the other line of cases, there is first national maintenance, there is effects-based bargaining that would otherwise apply, and it made the deliberate decision to move forward only analyzing this as a matter of an overall bargaining requirement. In other words, implicitly it made the decision that effects-based bargaining is giving way in this circumstance to the requirement of overall bargaining. Okay, so I acknowledge this is a tricky area, and I see my time is up, so I'll try to go quickly, but I want to make sure I cover everything in your question. So the board's finding was that this is not an effects bargaining case. So if you disagree with that, and I can explain why if you want to, but if you disagree with the board, if you think that the elimination of the five shifts guarantee was a matter of effects bargaining, and again, we disagree with that, but if you think it was, and the question is, what is the interplay between that effects bargaining obligation and the overall impasse requirement, then yes, you would have to remand, because that is an open question that the board did not address. The ALJ addressed it, but the board specifically said, we're not passing on that issue because we don't find this to be an effects bargaining violation. But isn't the conclusion that it's not an effects-based bargaining violation, isn't that their decision, that in the context of a case where the entrepreneurial decision is made at this moment in time while negotiations are going on, 
that a case is not, per se, it is not a case that raises effects-based bargaining. It's not a national maintenance case. I think it depends on what issue is being bargained about. See, the five-shift guarantee, and the board says this at footnote 18 in its decision, preexisted the first national maintenance decision. That was a topic that the parties had to negotiate over, regardless of whether the Post-Gazette made this decision to eliminate print days, to move to a digital transition. So that's why it was part of regular successor bargaining. I do want to say that the obligation to negotiate to a new CBA or an overall impasse, that was triggered because the contract had expired, not because of the first national maintenance decision. So there was already this obligation to bargain to agreement or impasse on the existing terms and conditions of employment, which included the five-shift guarantee. So that's the reason why that bargaining over five-shift guarantee was not effects bargaining, because it didn't stem from the decision to eliminate the print days. It already existed. So your argument is that the board's decision was based on 10.2 being status quo, not necessarily on the termination of these people. The board's decision was that the obligation to make... You've heard Judge Krause very closely question Mr. Hentos about what the basis of the board's decision was, and whether it was the termination of the employees, or whether it was the fact that the five-shift guarantee existed, and therefore they couldn't terminate. If you understand the distinction that I understood her to be drawing, and I think she was pressing on Mr. Hentos, she could speak to herself for herself on that. But what I just heard you say seemed to indicate that the board's view, as you're advocating it right now, is they were terminated because... It was unilateral action because the five-shift guarantee survived. Yes. Yes. The board found both the elimination of the five-shift guarantee and the layoffs to be unlawful. Unlawful unilateral action because they were done by the Post-Gazette without reaching agreement or impasse with the union. That's what unilateral action means. Overall impasse, right. Because they were in successor bargaining world because the contract had expired. I want to ask you about a case, and in fairness, this wasn't cited by the parties, and had it come up earlier, we would have given you a heads up about it. But perhaps you're familiar with it anyway. Give it a shot. That is Show Industries, Inc. It's a board decision where the employer was challenging a union certification, and the board had permitted the employer to engage in piecemeal bargaining on the effects of an entrepreneurial decision because it reasoned that would allow the parties to bargain about effects when it's most meaningful to do so. That's the closest authority in trying to find any authority dealing with a circumstance where overall bargaining would be in play simultaneously with effects-based bargaining. And it looks like there the board's reasoning, and this was a 1998 case, and a plurality decision, but the reasoning seems to be that effects bargaining should go forward where that's the circumstance when it would be meaningful 
to the parties. Why wouldn't that be the case here as well, where you'd be in the context of overall bargaining, but where there's this entrepreneurial decision that's going to lead to these effects, the meaningful bargaining takes place at the time that the entrepreneurial decision is going into effect, not waiting until there's way down the road an overall impasse. Right. So I'm not familiar with the case. It sounds from your description of it like if there was still a challenge to the certification, it's possible that there wasn't bargaining going on at the time. It sounds like the employer had probably refused to bargain. That's typically how those cases come up. And so then it wouldn't be subject to the overall bargaining, the overall impasse requirement, which comes into play when there's bargaining going on. So that's one point. And I guess the other is there is a general, I won't say presumption that carries other weight, but a general principle against piecemeal bargaining, because that is a kind of inherently unstable approach to bargaining, because bargaining is, it deals with back and forth. I give up something on this in exchange for this, but when you're breaking it out to piecemeal, you don't have that kind of back and forth. And so the board's policy is in favor of overall, reaching overall agreement or impasse rather than piecemeal bargaining. And so that's, but again, if the question is, if we're in a fixed bargaining world, which the board says we're not here, if we're in a fixed bargaining world, and how that interplays with first national maintenance, that's the open question. So that perhaps the board will look at that case if you remand it on those grounds. But that is a case that the board did not address in its decision. There's an issue that the board did not address in its decision because it didn't find we were in a fixed bargaining world. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Heller. Mr. Sharma for the union. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. My name is Manish Sharma. I'm here representing the intervener union. I quickly just want to use my time to make a few points. On the point that Judge Krause was asking my colleague about, that even if you were to read the language of 10-2 ending the five-shift guarantee, that doesn't get the company to the point of being able to unilaterally lay off employees. What if we were in first maintenance land and we were talking about effects bargaining? Sure. So the way it works in effects bargaining is that the company has to refrain from making the unilateral change, the layoff, until it's concluded effects bargaining. And in this instance, their assertion is they did that. Well, not really. They don't ever argue that in their brief. Wasn't that stipulated by the parties that you engaged in effects bargaining? Also engaged to impasse or agreement. That's before you can make a unilateral agreement. How does one decide that there's impasse? Is there some, you've got to go to somebody else and then say it's impasse? Or do they, they made what they characterized as their final and best offer and it was rejected. Is that not impasse? No, Your Honor. Impasse is a term of art that the National Labor Relations Board uses. There's about, I believe it's a nine-factor test that the board uses to determine whether or not impasse is there. And 
those simple sort of, there's my last final. There's a very famous quote by Judge Posner of the Seventh Circuit saying, last final offers are often followed by last best final offers. That that terminology itself does not necessarily mean that you're at an impasse. Well, here where we have a very narrow issue, and we've got a sequence that's in the stipulation of facts here of lengthy negotiations, multiple meetings, back and forth counteroffers, and it ends with the parties walking away and not coming back together. How would that test apply? How could it be that they did not reach an impasse in their effects bargaining? Yeah, so the effects bargaining, again, whether you're at impasse is the idea that both parties have to be at the end of the rope and have no room to move. The union certainly had never taken the position, had no room to move. And there's been no determination of whether or not, by the board at least, of whether or not. Do they have to get to a determination of that? If they've made an entrepreneurial decision, which is we're going to digital, we're losing money, we cannot afford to keep doing this, and they say we're doing it, and they say, look, they told you a month before, they engage, Judge Krause is correct, that's the way I read the record too. There's back and forth, there's multiple meetings, here's what happened, then there's the typical lawyer follow-up, here's what happened at the meeting. The other lawyer or union rep says, that isn't what happened at the meeting, this other thing happened at the meeting. It goes back and forth and back and forth. There's offer, counteroffer, rejection, offer, counteroffer. Finally, this is our last, final, best offer. No, we walk away. Is the union's position that before they can do anything, somehow there's a legal process that has to happen and some third party has to come in and say, now it's impasse, or there's not impasse? Well, no, Your Honor, the employer can take unilateral action at its peril that can then later be determined to have been impasse. Or not an impasse. Either way, Your Honor, that's a factual determination. It needs to be made by the board first rather than by this court. And the board hasn't made that determination here. So if you're looking for that. On that basis alone, you're saying this has to go back. I'm not saying this has to go back, Your Honor, because I'm not saying that we're at that issue. That's the second issue. Assume all the other things that we've talked about went against you, right? If everything else that we've been talking about went against you, what I hear you saying is this court couldn't say PG wins, done. It would have to say PG has to go back to the board for a factual determination of whether it bargained to impasse on effects bargaining. If this panel got through all the layers it needs to to get to the point where the question is whether or not they were at impasse in effects bargaining prior to the layoff, then, yes, you would have to remand for that question. I understand. Do you have any questions? No, I don't. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Mr. Sharma. Mr. Hentos. I'm going to be very brief, Your Honor. I just have a couple issues. One, I want to address the union's argument right there. That is a complete red herring. There is no allegation anywhere that the post-gazette failed to engage in effects bargaining as required. Well, that isn't what I heard him say. I didn't hear him say that they didn't engage. I heard him say 
there's no evidence. There's a factual determination still open, which has to be made, about whether you got the impasse. So, you know, he didn't give up anything. I didn't hear, I didn't understand him to be giving anything away. I understood him to be saying in the limited time he had, no matter what else happens here, you can't just rule for PG because whether they bargain to impasse on effects is a fact question that has to be determined at the agency level first. Is he right about that? He's wrong, Your Honor, because the problem is the general counsel never alleged that was a violation. They never alleged that the PG's effects bargaining that it engaged in, they never alleged that that was a violation of the act. That's simply just not before the court. My second issue I wanted to bring up, you heard NLRB counsel talk about this idea of piecemeal bargaining and how First National Maintenance interferes with that. This is kind of what I would call a fairness argument they're making there. Frankly, I don't quite get it because First National Maintenance lays down what the bargaining requirement is. And it's really that simple. It doesn't matter if it results in piecemeal bargaining. That's what the Supreme Court has ordered in this type of situation. But it hasn't addressed this type of situation where you're between collective bargaining agreements, where there's ongoing negotiations. That's the issue before us. Nobody's addressed that. It's a hole filler, Your Honor, if you think about it this way. So First National Maintenance is designed to address a very narrow situation. It deals with issues that do not require a bargaining requirement. Now, you've got CATS that deals with the situation where you're talking about a bargaining event, whereas First National Maintenance deals just with this subset. They're happening simultaneously, and there's not authority for that. I mean, the closest seems to be that show industries that I mentioned. But other than that, neither party has pointed us to any authority. So this is an open question, right? I think it's an open question, but the board is relying on bottom line. That's their analysis. Their analysis and their law cannot conflict with the Supreme Court precedent, which First National Maintenance is. So I think what the court says is, look, in this narrow circumstance where there's an entrepreneurial change, this is what the bargaining is going to look like. Can I ask you about the question about whether there was impasse reached? I'm looking at footnote 18 of the board's decision, and the board says, because we do not find the respondent committed an effects bargaining violation, we need not address the respondent's contention that the union engaged in dilatory tactics regarding bargaining over the effects of respondent's decision to reduce the number of print days by two. So should we take that as a finding that there was not a violation or the absence of any finding as to whether they reached impasse or not? It was never even alleged by the general counsel that there was any type of unlawful effects bargaining that occurred here. So I do think, Your Honor, you could take that statement by the NLRB. They've resolved that issue. They've made the finding that the Post-Gazette did nothing wrong with its effects bargaining. Their entire case is based around this premise of bottom line and the idea that we would have to reach some type of overall impasse before we could do anything. All right. Thank you. Thank you, counsel, for the NLRB and the union as well. We've got the matter under advisement. We'll recess court. Thank you.